My name is David Slyker. I've been in a youth ministry for 20 plus years now. Uh, I, uh, I've actually known Caleb, as he said, since he was 14, 15. I've known his wife, Rachel, since she was five. I've known them a long time. Corey and uh, Anna Asbury, I've known them quite a while. And so, uh, so it's, it's sweet to be here with them, and it's sweet to be here with you. This is an honor to, to be here with, uh, with you guys. This is an honor to be here with those that... The Lord is stirred and, and set in the front lines of an increasingly difficult task. You're, I don't really know, honestly. I, I, would, I would gather that there are brain surgeons and, and uh, others that have an easier task than you do. The, just getting your hands on the slippery dynamics and the ever-changing dynamics of ministering to youth. It's, uh, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And, and here's, here's the burden of my heart for me and for you, I'll tell you, just to get to know me a little bit, I'll tell you my vision for ministry and my vision for my life, just two quick sentences. My vision for youth ministry is really simple. It's not complicated. I want to see a young person get set free at 15. I want to see him singing at 60. I want to see him set free by the power of the Holy Spirit to be free, to be loved by Jesus, and I want to see him singing with tears at age 60. That's my youth ministry vision in one sentence. It's really simple because it's what we all want. We, we want more than that sweet altar call and that cool afterglow conversation. We want more than, than those, those amazing moments, though those amazing moments are so sweet. We actually want more than the question that I hated every time I went to the ministry, ministry conference. I had a rather large youth group when I was in uh, early days of youth ministry, and I, I hated going to the youth ministry conferences. I hated them. I hated going to the ministry conferences. I hated them because I knew the first question out of my friends' mouths were, so how big's your youth group? That's the defining. And then question number two would be the other defining characteristic of your success in youth ministry. So how many of your guys are in ministry? It's like, ah, really? That's really, that's, that's what I'm after. I'm after big and more, more pastors. That's what I'm after. I, I'm not after more pastors. I'm after more love for Jesus. I don't care what their occupation is. I don't care what they do when they grow up. I don't, I'm not looking for their success to validate my sacrifice. I want them to love Jesus more. That's, that's what I'm after. And I want them to still be loving Jesus through all the seasons of life, which is my own personal goal. My personal goal is I want to really do the first commandment. I really want to do it. I really want to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength through all the seasons of my life. I was just talking with some... Uh, some, some missionary friends yesterday afternoon. We're just talking about life. And I was just talking about the seasons of life. How many of you are in your 20s? You're here and you're in your 20s. Just raise your hand. I'm so sorry about what I'm going to say next. How many of you are in your 30s? You're in your 30s. How many of you are in your 40s? We have need of you. I want to, I want to tell you the problem with youth ministry in America is there aren't enough 40-year-olds in it. We need you. We need you. We, uh, we have a, and then here's the problem with being 40. There aren't enough 60-year-olds that have stayed with it. The, the, uh, the landscape is barren. We have many teachers and many leaders and many leadership conferences, but we have few fathers. And we, we, uh, we come to leadership things because we're touching our felt need. We want to be better leaders. But, uh, but, but uh, better leaders, I, w- I want to tell you, and you don't have to believe me, 
I love leadership principles. I love good leadership. I love good leaders. But America doesn't need more leaders. America needs spiritual fathers. Our, our famine in America is not for great leadership. Our famine is for spiritual fathers with an inheritance in the spirit, a depth in the word, and a history in God that they can give the next generation. That's our, that's our great crisis right now. And people want to talk about the crisis of teenagers. The crisis that's happening with teenagers is only because so few have actually gone somewhere in the spirit to hand something to the next generation. And so my, my burden for you, I'm just thinking about the seasons of life. Because, you know, you, just, you come to Colorado Springs, the mountains are here, you start, you start thinking about your life. What's my life about? Well, here's the, here's the, here's the awful thing about being 20. And again, if you're 20, please forgive me. But I would never want to repeat my 20s ever, ever. You couldn't pay me a billion dollars to repeat my 20s. We were just talking with some friends of ours last night. They've been in ministry forever. And they just said, man, we're getting old, aren't we? And I said, I love it. They said, what are you, what are you talking about? What do you mean? No, I said, I really love it. I love getting old. I'm an introvert. Every time I'm with people, I'm expending battery, I'm expending battery power. And the great thing about being an introvert at 40 is it takes 25% power to get people to believe me. When I was in my 20s, no one would believe me. It takes so much less work to get people to believe me. I love being old. I love it. I love it. Here's why I love it. Now, now it's not automatic, by the way, that you're going to love it when you're 40. But, but, uh, but I, I do love it by the grace of God. And and because uh, here's the thing, when you're in your 20s, it, it is the most confusing time of your life because you, you, you have so many different options trying to define what life is about. And you have so many different options looking to define what's important and what matters. And you have so many different options and you're not quite sure who to, where, what to pick. That's why our famine of fathers is so, so critical right now. There's so few fathers that can reach into the fog of your 20s and reach into the fog of confusion related to the people that are looking to persuade you to sign up for their version of what life should be about and their version of what the future should be and their version of what they want you to do. There's so few that can reach into the fog and, and, just, and just clear the mist and shine the light and go, look, here's the deal. I, I, I've tried that. I've tried that. I've tried that. Here's why it's a miserable failure. I've, I've gone through a few wars. I've come out relatively unscathed, though I'm missing a few limbs. But the reality is, having gone through this, here's what I found. And let me tell you, this is what life is about. We, we need 40-year-old fathers, 50-year-old fathers, 60-year-old fathers keep, keeping the 40-year-olds in the, in the game, 40-year-old fathers keeping the 20-year-olds in the game, 20-year-old fathers keeping the 15-year-olds in the game, 15-year-old fathers keeping the 10-year-olds in the game because they're looking at porn by age nine. We need 15-year-old fathers going, no, you don't have to. I've been there. You don't have to. We need, it, we need it in every season of life. We need someone that's gone just before us to keep telling us, no, I'm telling you, I know it doesn't look like it right now. I know it doesn't seem like it's going to work. I know that this culture, this world is promising you short-term gain if you'll sell out in these three areas. I want to promise you, it doesn't feel like it's worth it, but it will be worth it. And so the, so the 20s, you're not quite sure what, what it's about. If you're, if you're honest, you know, you, part of the reason you love coming to these things is because you like, again, hearing that it's about Jesus. You want to hear again. Tell me it's about Jesus again. I want to hear it's about Jesus. My senior pastor says that it's about Jesus, but also it's about the elder's 15-year-old 
<laughs> and it's also about the fact that this meeting isn't quite working. It's also slightly about job security. And it's also slightly about what I thought success would be when I was 15. And it's also slightly about this. Just tell me again it's about Jesus. Tell me again it's about his smile. Tell me again it's about his joy over my life. Tell me again that he likes me, even though nothing in youth ministry is working. And I feel like the worst leader that ever signed up. Tell me again that it, tell me again that it's working because he loves me, not because I read the seven principles of breakthrough leadership. I don't even know if that's a real book. I just made it up. But, the, but here's the problem. The problem is when you're in your 20s, you graduate to your 30s, and there's actually greater challenges ahead. So here's the challenge. The challenge of the 20s is I'm not quite sure what's true, but, but you sign up for stuff. The challenge of your 30s is you get there and you realize that it's not what you thought it was going to be. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. Ministry isn't what I thought it was going to be. The, the future isn't what I thought it was going to be. My life isn't what I thought it was going to be. I, I thought I would have more. Or I thought it would be easier. Or I thought it would work better. I, I, this isn't what I thought it would be. The, the challenge of the 30s is different than the challenge of the 20s. The challenge of the 30s is the challenge of disillusionment related to a destination you've been laboring for for 10 years, but the destination isn't as awesome as you thought it would be in your 20s. You get there at 30 and you go, this is it? This is it? I, I'm 30 now. I've been doing this ministry thing for 10 years. I, I'm, I'm in my 30s. I, I signed up, but... but I thought I was signing up for something more exciting. I thought I was signing up for something that was going to move me deeper. You know, it's, the, it's when you're in your 20s, you preach that message for the first time. You know what I'm talking about? You preach that sermon for the first time. You, you're in your prayer time. You read that passage. You get that clever insight and that clever way to deliver it. I mean, everybody's trying to be clever. Clever is easy. Anointed is hard. But let's just go with clever for a minute. You get that passage, it's, you get that clever little insight that you never heard anybody preach before, and you preach it, and ooh, it feels so good. And you can ride that wave for a long time, that every time you preach that message, it feels so good. But then after a while, it stops feeling good, but you can ride the wave of it feels good to them much longer. It doesn't feel good to you anymore, it stopped moving your heart years ago. The old messages, you're looking for the fresh revelation. Those old messages, they don't move me like they used to, but they still move them, and you can live off the jazz of it moving them for quite some time. Oh, God, that was great preaching, preacher. Great preaching. Yes. Yes, it was. You can live off that jazz longer than you'd care to admit. But then you get to about the 10-year mark in preaching the same messages, and the old jazz of the new message is gone, and the jazz of it moving them is gone, and now where are we at? And it's that destination of, I, I, I thought it would be different. I thought this would be different. I thought we would have revival by now. I thought we would have breakthrough by now. I thought that they would be more godly by now. I thought the parents would be more thankful by now. I thought the ministry would be bigger by now. I thought... And maybe, maybe, maybe I need to, a new challenge. Maybe I need a fresh challenge. And you enter into the challenge of your 40s. The challenge of your 40s is a whole new set of challenges. It's a new season of life. And the challenge of your 40s, that's the challenge of, okay, I've made peace with the fact that it's not going to be what I thought it was going to be. Am I going to actually lay hold of something? What's my life going to be about now? Now that I actually have a clearer picture of what life is really about, am I going to sign up for it? Am I going to, what am I going to be in relationship to what I now know? And that challenge of 
Your time's running out. That challenge of what's my legacy? That challenge of of who am I and where is this going? That challenge of creeping passivity that that, that, uh, is content to settle for less. Or will you still dream at 40 of the future? Part of the power of Joel 2 and Acts 2. Part of the power of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We we overlook it all the time. We're so excited about young people prophesying. Because that is pretty amazing when a 15-year-old actually says the heart of God and actually gets it mostly right and actually partially quoted that that scripture. And actually that person was just praying that scripture that morning. When a 15-year-old does it, we are like, whoa, God, you're real. But that's not the most amazing part about Joel 2 and Acts 2. The most amazing part of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that old men dream dreams. That's the amazing thing. What's so rare in youth ministry is to look up and you're an old man and you're still dreaming. You're still fighting. You're still wanting to lay hold of something. You still believe. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Jesus said, Luke tells us he told this parable that that men would pray always and not lose heart. Jesus understood that the challenge of prayer wasn't even in the doing of it. It was losing heart. We lose heart in the delay. We lose heart in the asking. We lose heart. We lose heart in our 20s because we're not sure what life is about. Really, we're trying to figure out which version is the real version. We lose heart in our 30s because we get there and it's not what we thought it would be. We lose heart. We lose heart in our 40s because now we know this is what life is. It's mostly small. It's mostly hidden. It's mostly unnoticed. Mostly I'm misunderstood mostly nobody gets me mostly my labors have not produced what I thought they would mostly Jimmy who I loved when I was 20 is mostly in a bad marriage with divorce and bad kids and I thought it would be more I thought America would be different I thought my ministry would be different I thought my marriage would be different I thought my kids would be different Jesus said that men would pray always and not lose heart the men would pray always and not lose heart. He says, he says I'm just going to give you the punchline. Because I'm not preaching on the parable. I'm just referencing it. But I'm just going to give you the punchline. You know, he tells, if you're familiar with the parable, he tells the story of the persistent widow. She wants something. She, she has no option. She's a widow. No one's fighting for her. So she goes to an unjust judge. She says, I'm just going to keep going until he says yes. The judge goes, I don't want to say yes. I am a wicked man. Nobody ever says I'm a wicked man, but I'm just being concise. She's going to bug me until I relent. I'll relent. So Jesus goes, hear what the widow said. Hear what the judge said. Hear what the unjust judge said. If an unjust judge, if an unjust judge was predisposed to say no because he's wicked, How much more is your heavenly father who's predisposed to say yes? How much more is he leaning towards you wanting to answer the cry of your heart? How much more is he leaning towards you wanting to pour out beyond what you've asked, beyond what you could imagine? How much more is he looking to break through with what Jesus called speedy justice, which is all that's wrong in your world and the world around you being made right? You're looking at that family that's broken. And you're going, God, justice for that family. How much more does he want it? We lose heart because we imagine we want something more than God does. The things of the kingdom, the things of the word, the things of his heart. We lose heart because we imagine we want it more than God does. 
Why won't you break through with healing? Why won't you break through with transformation? Why won't you break through with love? Why won't you break through with finances? Why won't you break through with favor? Why won't you break through with promotion? We lose heart because we imagine we want it more than he does. Jesus goes, that's not the issue. Luke 18, verse 8, he goes, here's the issue. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's the issue. I promise you justice will come speedily. When the earth is filled with night and day prayer for speedy justice, justice will come speedily. The issue isn't what God wants. Jesus said the issue is, will you still want what I want when I return? That's the issue of the hour. What do you want right now? Point one, I mean, James 4, is it what God wants? You have not because you ask not, or if you ask, you're asking according to your own lust, not according to the desire and the passion of the heart of Jesus. Do you want the right things? Do you want what God wants? And will you still want it when he returns? Through all the seasons of life, will you still want what I want when I return? That's the issue, Jesus said. Will you still want it? Will you still be dreaming? Will you still be longing for the things I long for when I return? We're, um, here we are, we're in this season in the ministry I'm in, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. It's an uh, aggressive, whatever, ministry. And so we've got, this, we've got this business consultant that's helping us. And uh, he's a high-level guy. He, uh, he loves us, which is good. He, he mostly works with like Google and Microsoft and right now he's doing a project with Baylor University and he's a high level consultant that works with CEOs, does, does executive coaching and he's walking us through a, a realignment process for organizational health and so I'm on the team that's helping with that and, and uh, so I'm taking notes, I'm learning a ton and, and what I found fascinating, he said, you know, he said, uh, because everybody goes, I want to be a better leader and he always asks the question, leadership to do what? We want to We want to not just be a better leader. We want leadership to do something. We want to do the right things the right way to get the right results. We want to do the right things the right way to get the right results. That's that's kind of what he's coaching us in. We want to do this the right way. We want to do do the right stuff. We want to get rid of doing the wrong stuff. We want to do the right stuff. We want to prioritize our time and our money around the right stuff, done the right way to get the right results. One of the things that he's pointed out to us often is he goes, hey, one of, the, one of your guys' problems, which is the problem of, of the human race, he goes, you guys all play to your strengths. You play to your strengths. And so this, this organization in so many ways is built around what you're good at. And, uh, and in that sense, we're a product of our culture. We're a product of our culture. Our culture demands immediate success that we lend our strength to. We want to we be strong. We want to be good at this. We want to be dynamic. We want to be better. We want to be, be stronger. We want to learn more to be better to accomplish more. And so even prayer and intimacy, subjects like intimacy with Jesus and fellowship with the Holy Spirit, even these subjects by accident can be a means to an end. And the means to the end is the, is the ambition of our own heart to, to arrive at a destination by which we are awesome. We're going to go from strength to strength into awesomeness and destiny. You know, it's what we've been told by our youth pastor since we were 15. You're a history maker. You're going to be amazing. You're going to break through. You're going to be great. You're going to be anointed. You're going to be powerful. You're going to change the world. Nobody tells us. Nobody tells us. Hey, there's this parable about faithfulness and smallness. And mostly your life 
Look, little 15-year-old, your life is mostly going to be very small, doing very little things for a very long time that most people are going to misunderstand. You're mostly not going to have a huge impact. It's mostly about doing one little thing all the days of your life to please a God whose eye is on you. And it's not about the others that are watching. And it's not about impressing others. And it's not about enlarging your ego. It's about very small things for a very long time that will be very misunderstood. Nobody gives that message. And so we've imagined that we've got to do this amazing thing with this amazing work that's going to have amazing impact. And so we are afflicted with the disease of more. Therefore, we play to our strengths constantly. Successful Christianity isn't about consistently playing to your strengths, including God, when necessary. Successful Christianity is about power being made perfect in our weakness. It's about the weakness of the believer and the weakness of the believer. The believer that embraces the glory of weak, broken smallness also then embraces the glory of prayer that God can do something bigger than us in glorious ways that continually surprise. That's what we want to orient our ministries towards, in my opinion. We don't want to, I mean, again, I like excellence. I like good leaders. I'm not about, I'm not trying to say do less awesome. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that there's a missing component in our ministries. And the missing component is at the end of the day, we aren't very much and have very little to offer and mostly aren't good at what we've been called to. We're mostly really bad at what we've been called to. We mostly are. We are mostly really bad at this. And you can get all your, sociological studies and demographic studies and understand the youth culture and get relevant and wear the tightest genes in human history. You can do whatever you want to do. You're still going to be bad at this. I'm in a new season. I've got, I've got teenagers. Not just, I have, I'm not just doing youth ministry. I, I live with youth ministry, which is a whole new era of life and you know, people ask me, they go, give me some parenting advice. And I just refuse. I won't, I won't do it. I won't give parenting advice. I won't write books. I just, because I've only got one point. I am really bad at this, but man, I love Jesus. <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, we need what we do not have to bring teenagers where we cannot take them. Because again, you can... Use your charisma and your strategies and your persuasiveness and your coolness. And by coolness, I don't mean that you're hip. By coolness, you mean you're paying attention to them when no one else is and you like them when no one else does. And that goes a long way. You can build a powerful youth ministry on you like them. But, but at the end of the day, you liking them, which gets them to show up, isn't going to get them free at 15, singing at 60. You've got to get them to a destination. You cannot take them on your own and you have to give them that which you do not have. That's where a a dynamic life in the Holy Spirit is not an option. It's just not an option. And by dynamic life in the Holy Spirit, I just wanted to define it, talking briefly about, I'll talk more practically about this this afternoon in my little deal, but but a dynamic life in the Holy Spirit, what I mean by that is it's really simple. I mean, we need the power of the Holy Spirit on us, not just the fullness of the Holy Spirit in us. I I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in me. I have since the new birth. I have the fire of a billion suns exploding on the inside right now, and so do you. 
At the new birth, the full measure of the love of Jesus was set on my life. He will never love me more than he does right now. And the full measure of the Holy Spirit was set in me. I will never have more of the Holy Spirit in me than I do right now. Never. I will never get more of the love of God and I will never get more of the Spirit of God as it pertains to my relationship to Him. My individual life in God, the fullness of God is mine. I've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, Peter said. The fullness of God is mine right now. But, but here's the problem, because there's lots of guys that are going, there we go, then you've arrived, then what's your deal? You're good. I go, well, here's the problem. The problem is my individual life with God is great in terms of the full measure of his love and affection and acceptance and approval. I don't get to vote. It's not a democracy. I can't negotiate God's affections based on my behavior. He's stubbornly fixed on loving me no matter what. He is absolutely zealous on that point and isn't looking for my opinion. That's great. The full measure of the spirit on the inside, blazing the spirit of holiness and truth and power blazing within me. That's great. But here's the problem. When I came to Colorado Springs, the mayor didn't know I came and that he won't care when I leave. Nobody's going to fill stadiums to figure out how to kill me. Stop me from preaching the gospel. Dead guys didn't get up when I walked around. I mean, just lots of stuff. My shadow didn't heal anybody today. You know, it's just lots of stuff that indicate to me that though I have the fullness of God in my life, I want the fullness of God on my life. I want something that I do not have, that I cannot make happen by the force of my own charisma and strength. I want something that only God can give and only God can do. I want to position my life. I can't earn it, but I can position my life and I can reach and I can ask. I want the power of the Holy Spirit on my mind to know the word, on my heart to feel his love, and on my life to see breakthrough in the lives of others. That's what I'm after. Jesus called it, in Matthew 25, he called it the oil of the, the oil of intimacy. Matthew 25. I'm not, again, I'm just going to be brief, super brief on this point. But he, he's laying out in Matthew 25, and that's where you can turn to. I'm going to look at two passages before we're done. Two passages. I'm going to look at Matthew 25, and I'm going to look at 2 Corinthians 3. Matthew 25, now that we've kind of set the context a little bit. Is context set? Are you with me? How are you doing? Good. Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Because again, what's my goal? My goal is fruit that remains in the ministry that I set my hand to. Again, again, I'm not, I'm not just looking for the power of the Holy Spirit for a great meeting. I'm not just looking for the power of the Holy Spirit for today's healing. I'm looking for the power of the Holy Spirit to do what I cannot do. I want them to have Freedom at 15. I want them to have fire at 20. I want them to have life at 30. I want them to have joy at 40. I want them to have fiery kids at 50. I want them to have breakthrough missionary firebrands in the nation's grandchildren when they're 60. I'm not just doing youth ministry for the person that's staring at me in the meeting. I'm thinking of their grandkids and I want them on fire. And so... Jesus gives this parable, Matthew 24, 25. See, Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching on his return. That's the, the question that he's asking. He, uh, 
they, he's answering. They ask him a question. They go, what's the sign of your coming? What's the sign of the end of the age? In other words, where's this going? He goes, well, let me tell you how you know I'm coming. And he breaks down for them how they'll know when his return is, when it's going to happen. And then he begins to prepare and pastor them related to the leadership dynamics of being a leader in the, in the hour of his return. So here's what leadership means in the hour of my return. That's what he cares about. He doesn't just care that we know what's going to happen. He cares that we can prepare people for it. That we can prepare for, with a vision, that we would be gripped with a vision for his return. His return is global justice. So he goes, so here's what I'm after. And so he gives three parables. And the three parables are, are leadership parables. They are two leaders. They're two people like you. He's looking at leaders like you and he's saying, here are some leadership dynamics that I care that you care about. I care that you understand the dynamics of delay. Whether it be the delay in answered prayer, whether it be the delay in breakthrough, whether it be the delay in seeing change in your ministries, or the ultimate delay that he's addressing, the delay of his return, he's dealing with leadership dynamics related to delay. And so he says in the first one, he says, this one, this parable is for wicked leaders. This is about wicked leaders who their perspective on my return is that, uh, that they, they aren't even thinking about my return. They're not even thinking about it. It's not on their mind. And therefore, the delay is shorter than they expected. They weren't preparing for the breakthrough of God. They weren't preparing for his return. They weren't, they weren't preparing people for it because they were mostly self-obsessed and self-consumed. They're wicked because they weren't being filled with the love of God. Being filled with the love of God, experiencing the love of God, fills you with a zeal to fight for somebody else and to fight for their destiny and to fight for their greatness, not your own. You, once you are gripped with the freedom of being loved by Jesus, you're gripped with the joy of being connected to the God that fights for you. Therefore, you do not have to fight for yourself. You have to fight for your destiny. You don't have to fight for your future. You don't have to scratch and claw and maneuver and position and figure out how to get that associate pastor to like you and figure out how to get that guy to stop talking about you and figure out how to get on that elder's team. You don't have to posture and position. You have the freedom of a God that fights for you. Therefore, you're free in an abandoned way as a leader to fight for others. Jesus is identifying the wicked leader that's not even thinking about him or his return. They're merely thinking about themselves and their own good. Then he lays out the second parable, the one I'm going to talk about briefly. He lays out the second parable and he goes, now this is a a parable about the delay being longer than expected. The first one was about shorter. The second one is longer. It's longer. The, the breakthrough takes longer. Revival is not coming. Change is not coming. Justice is not coming. And Jesus is dealing with leadership dynamics in a delay that's longer than we expect. That, that longing for the fulfillment of our desire, that longing for the answer to our dreams, that longing for the day that we're laboring for, and it's not coming. He goes, let me... Let me talk to you now about leadership when it's not happening. The breakthrough came sooner than they expected because they weren't looking for it. The breakthrough came longer than they expected. How do we deal with our hearts? Then the last one, which I'm not touching, is that the delay is harder than I expected. The parable of the talents. It's that the delay of breakthrough and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy, the delay is harder than I expected. Ministry is harder than I expected. Serving Jesus is harder than I expected. And so the dynamics are around, he's giving leadership principles around a wrong evaluation of what matters in ministry. 
Therefore, it's harder than I thought it was going to be. A a wrong evaluation of what success is, a, a wrong evaluation of who Jesus is, a wrong evaluation primarily about how he feels about us in the labor. Therefore, ministry is harder than we thought. Therefore, our transition plan is drawn up. So I want to hit that point really quickly. How does he feel about you in the work? So I, I say this. I, I give leadership to all our internships and training programs in Kansas City. And so I, may, I don't want to do, I want others to teach, but I, I make sure that I give one, I want to do one teaching every time. I care about this one the most. And it's the first week they're here. They're coming to an international ministry that they have all kinds of ideas about. They have all kinds of ideas about themselves and who they're going to be in this international ministry. And this international ministry could be the chariot that escorts me to my dreams. And so I always want to talk to that group first thing. I always say this. I go, I want you to understand something about us and who we are. I want you to know who we are. So there's this thing that Isaiah 42 talks about. There's this thing that Jesus talked about in Luke 18. There's this thing called the worldwide prayer and worship movement. The Holy Spirit is... Is, uh, is breathing on it right now across the earth, the worldwide prayer and worship movement. I said, but there's a worldwide missions movement and there's a, there's a church growth movement. There are movements throughout the body of Christ that the Holy Spirit is orchestrating. Here's what he's doing according to Isaiah 42. He's building a global symphony. And at the end of the age, just before he returns, the church on the earth will lift their voice in one unified song. That's what Isaiah 42 describes. This unified song of a global symphony that Jesus is building and he is the conductor. I said, let me tell you what you're a part of. You're a part of this global song called the body of Christ worldwide. The the orchestra that God is building of movements and denominations and churches and believers that you'll never meet but you'll be friends with for billions of years. The Lord is building this global symphony and you're a part of that. And you're a part of what we call the global prayer and worship movement. That's like the string section. And I don't know that it is, but I think of the missions movement like the brass section. I think of the, the prayer movement, the worship movement like the string section. You're part of the string section, and it's amazing. And, and in your little part in the string section, you came to the International House of Prayer. And guess what? We're not even a violin in the string section. We're a little string on a violin in a string section in an orchestra conducted by Jesus. We're just a little string. You came here to be a part of our little note that we're playing over and over again. Here's what's beautiful about this. What's beautiful about this is that when we have a right evaluation of what we're doing and why we're doing it, we can do it for decades. So I'm not going to be a part of the biggest, baddest youth ministry that ever hit the planet. Nope. (laughs) Nope. You're going to labor for 20 years in youth ministry and Barna statistics are still going to make you look bad. But what if my ministry grows to 10,000? Yep. <laughs> then there's going to be, you know, the, the other guys that come out with their stats. And then all of a sudden some dude's going to write a book and everyone's going to think the youth pastors reek. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, uh, why am I doing that again? Here's why. Here's why. Because if you play your little note faithfully, it actually impacts the quality of the global song. And 
when you play your note faithfully. It may be a small little note, but it means everything to Jesus that you play it with all your heart. Why do we do what we do? We do what we do not because it's the biggest and the best. We do what we do actually because it's the smallest and the least, but it moves his heart that we do it. It moves his heart. You have every reason to quit. You have every reason to draw back. You have every reason to coast. You have every reason to take it easy. You have every reason to schedule youth retreats that are actually marriage vacations. You have every reason. (laughs) You have every reason to sign out of this in your heart and and get a paycheck. But you're not doing it for the paycheck. I don't want to tell you, you're not even doing it for the teens. You're not doing it for them. You're not. If you do it for them, you'll be bitter in 10 years. You cannot do youth ministry for teenagers. It will disappoint you. It will turn your heart sour. You cannot do youth ministry for the teens. It's for them. No, it's not. It's because he loved me. He found me. And he washed me in his own blood. And he set my feet on a rock. He's making me a king and a priest. He's making me one that loves as I am loved. No one loves me like he loves me. No one's loved me like he has. He's fought for me in every season of my life. He's prophesied. He's fought. He lives, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 7.25. He lives to make intercession for me. He lives to pour out his life. The one who received all honor, all glory, all greatness, all worth, all praise, all riches, all majesty. He didn't take any of it to make himself great. He poured it out for my greatness. No one's loved me like he has. Who's loved me like this? I have no options. I've got to love him back. Why am I in this? I'm in this because it moves his heart when I have every reason to quit, but I sign up again to love. That's why I'm in this. And so if I'm going to love, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to love those that he loves because I love him, if I'm going to do it, then I've got to do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, now, here's how we navigate our heart when the delay is longer than you expected, when you're laboring for breakthrough, when you're laboring for justice, when you're laboring for change, when you're laboring to see the impact and the fruit of your ministry, but it's longer than you expected. Because here's what you do. You get oil. You get oil on your heart. You get oil. What does he say? He says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five were wise. Five were foolish. The foolish took their lamps but took no oil with them. All they had was the oil they came with. I want to just say a few things about this parable. He's not talking about losing your salvation. He's not talking about what he's talking about, if I don't say, rather than saying what he's not talking about, I'll say what he is talking about. He's talking to leaders about their ministries, and he's talking about leaders that spend their strength in the delay and have nothing left to give in the hour of breakthrough. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the wise that have the long view of ministry and leadership. He's talking about the wise that understand that there's a day of darkness and breakthrough coming in which a light will be needed to help others see when it's impossible to see. You're on, I believe, you're on the 
verge of those kinds of days right now. The, the level of confusion and deception and disagreement with the gospel and the, the truth of the Lord's word. It's unlike any day I can, I, I've known in my 20 years of ministry. I mean, I just want you to think about something. I want you to think about the day in which you live. You live in a day in which wicked men can publicly execute 21 believers in front of the whole earth. I've never heard of anything like that in church history, where you can execute 21 believers in front of the whole earth, and the next day the earth is watching cat videos. They forgot all about it. I mean, you're you're living in a day of unprecedented wickedness, unprecedented decisions to turn away from God, unprecedented governmental, national decisions to turn away from God that have massive ramifications, and yet that video of that guy falling off the treadmill is what we're clicking on. I mean, there's a dullness. There is an absolute dullness and a disconnect. You're living in a day of absolute confusion, but it's just the beginning of the beginning. And there's a day coming in which the earth will need voices that have light and clarity and authority and boldness and tenderness and humility and joy and gratitude and loneliness and meekness. There's a day coming when the right people with the right spirits, with the right message to the right people at the right time will change everything. And so here we are. The delay is longer than we expected. The delay of breakthrough, the delay of justice, the delay of change is longer than we expected. And so we're spending our strength trying to get stronger. And the Lord goes, be wise. See the truth of your weakness in the delay and understand what you really need in this hour. What you need in this hour, I'm not saying that you don't need leadership principles. I'm not saying that you don't need training and equipping. I'm not saying that you don't need excellence. I'm not saying that you don't need creative ways to communicate. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's something you need more than those things. And what you need more than those things in the delay is what Jesus called oil or power from the Holy Spirit on the heart. He said, you need that more than those things. See that, I wonder if I, if I can say this with kindness. How much of what we do is skillful leadership that, that is good? And how much of what we do is a coping mechanism for our lack of the Holy Spirit's involvement in our lives, marriages, and ministries. If I can say that with kindness. How much of what we do is papering over our lack of God, our lack of the Holy Spirit, our lack of depth, our our lack of intimate relationship and the knowledge of Him? How much of what we do is continually preaching principles and rarely preaching the man? How much can we talk about pursuing Jesus, but how little can we talk about the details of who he is? How much can we teach a young person and disciple them to stay pure, but how rarely can we teach them why and for what? Stay pure, okay. You do realize that it's 2015, and I have 10,000 more options than you did when you were 15, Mr. Youth Pastor. I do realize that, but stay pure. Why? Because you need to. Why? Because it's important. Why? Because your marriage. Why? Here's why. 
Because the Lord wants to do Romans 5, 1 through 5. Pour the love of Jesus into your life. Turn it upside down. Absolutely obliterate your understanding with the beauty of who he is. Turn you upside down with the revelation of who he is. And the less you have in the way, the better when he comes knocking on the door of your heart. We don't want to stay pure just for the sake of purity, though that's good. We want purity because we are after something called the detailed knowledge of a man that we can grasp. The oil of the Spirit, the activity of the Holy Spirit, it's the activity of the Spirit on our hearts that makes us tender. We want the oil that makes us tender. Ephesians 3. We want the oil, we want the activity of the Spirit making us tender so that we're more responsive, so that our yes to the Spirit is faster, so that our ability to perceive what He's saying and doing is sharper. We want a tenderness that's leaning towards God with a yes rather than leaning away with a frustrated no in the delay. In the delay. God, it's not what I thought it would be. It's taking longer than I thought. The The change isn't coming and the ministry feels the same and the things that used to move me don't move me anymore. The Lord says, get oil. Get oil. Get that activity of the Spirit. Ephesians 3. Get that activity of the Spirit on your heart so that there's a tenderness and a yes. And even in the frustration of delay, you're joyfully leaning in rather than cynically leaning out. Cynicism is creeping at your door waiting to consume your life. Cynicism. Well, you know, I went to that one conference and they talked about the things of the Spirit, but that's just weird. There's just some weird stuff there. And we just, we don't want the weirdness, brother. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit is not the spirit of weird. He's the spirit of truth. If he shows up and things are weird, it's because you're weird and he turned a light on. The Holy Spirit came and they're acting weird. I know, it's called who they really are. We want to be tender. We want the oil of the Spirit to enlarge our desire for Him, to increase our wanting of Him. Yes, I am filled with the Holy Spirit, but I live most of my days forgetting that point. Yes, I have the fullness. Yes, I have the, I really do, the fullness. I don't have anything less than the fullness of the Spirit blazing inside of me right now. But I live most of my days dull and disconnected to that fact. When I begin to lean, just that simple asking, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, I want more of you. I'm not asking for literally more of what's fully inside of me. I'm asking, what I'm asking for is more desire for what the Lord's given me. I'm guessing that for the visitor, the Colorado mountains are like the sea of glass. But just give it two years. It's amazing how fast overfamiliarity with beauty sets in. And the things that used to move us don't move us anymore. We need fresh desire for the beauty of what we've been given to long for it. We need the gift of hunger and the gift of longing. The oil of the Spirit. See, the life in the Spirit's about more than awesome ministry. The life of the Holy Spirit is about more than awesome stories and awesome testimonies. The life of the Spirit recognizes where our greatest needs really are. Where is your greatest need really? Is your greatest need to be a better minister on Wednesday night? Or is your greatest need to be a better lover on Tuesday night when no one's looking? Where's your greatest need? Is your greatest need to be a great communicator or is your greatest need to be a tender husband that fights for your wife's destiny? Where 
Where's your area of greatest need? Pursuing a life, a dynamic life of the Holy Spirit on your mind and on your heart, it's a humble confession of your greatest needs, really. My greatest need, really, is to really know who you are, Ephesians 1, to have the activity of the Spirit on my mind and to really feel and experience and desire what you've given me, Ephesians 3. Those are my greatest needs. If those greatest needs are met in prayer and encounter with Jesus, then ministry is easy. I can deal with delay because I'm filling my life with that which really matters. I know the word makes more sense. Holiness makes more sense. Sin is dumber. Holiness is smarter. (laughs) Loving is better. It's easier. That teenager that's in your youth group that you really want to love but cannot, and you know why? I mean, we understand that we do not relate to one another according to the flesh. Because we're in the new covenant, we relate to one another according to the spirit. But boy, Jimmy is a jerk. (laughs) I don't want to relate to him in the flesh. I don't want to relate to him based on what my eyes see. I don't want to relate to him based on his behavior. Jesus doesn't relate to me based on my behavior. He relates to me based on his love for me. I don't want to relate to Jimmy based on his behavior. I want to relate to him based on how Jesus feels about him. I want to. I want to, but he makes it so hard. Jesus goes, I know. And the delay is longer than you expected. And you're going to have to put up with Jimmy as Jimmy for a long time. So get oil. Get that power on the heart to see him as Christ does and to feel what Jesus feels about him and to hear what Jesus is saying about him. You can be the most powerful youth minister that ever lived in your generation, not by having the biggest meetings, but by having the heart of Jesus for Jimmy in that one word that defines him from the Lord's perspective, not on today's behavior. I tell this to... 15-year-old girls all the time related to dating. I go, don't you settle for being flirted with. Some dude tries to define and reduce you to an object to be flirted with. You change the rules. You prophesy over them. (laughs) So some dude comes up. (laughs) Hey! And what's always awesome is when I give that talk at camps, girls will always look at me when guys actually do that. They think when I say that guys do that that I'm joking. They think I'm joking. And then at camp, I'll be across the way and I'll look and I'll see some dude go. And the girl will always, no matter where I am, they'll somehow find me. They'll go. I tell them, I go change the rules, prophesy. And so I tell them, you know, do this. Just go, hey, you know, you are so sweet. Here's what I'm thinking right now. I'm thinking that you are a brand plucked from the fire that the Lord's filled with his love that's going to set fire to the nations. I love that you're here because you're going to encounter the jealousy of God over the preacher that he's made you to be. I love that you're here. (laughs) Guys, Guys don't know what to do when girls do that. Because the rules of the game were, I say a joke, you laugh, I get your attention, I put a notch on my belt. Yeah. They don't know what to do when the girl prophesies. Now they're going, how do I win this game? You win this game by praying and actually knowing a Bible verse. Okay, so. (laughs) And finally, it imparts, the oil of the Spirit imparts zeal for righteousness. We need a zeal for righteousness that's Holy Spirit imparted. 
We need that Romans 5, love of Jesus poured in our heart by the Holy Spirit that gives us a zeal and a longing for righteousness, holiness. It's not just a principle that we're trying to obey, but it's a zeal that's spirit imparted by the power of grace operating within us. We need this. So let's close with this. 2 Corinthians 3. I've said a lot. It's because I get one shot at you. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He, he lays out, you can look at it later, he, he lays out in 2 Corinthians 3, the high point of the Old Covenant, the, the farthest a man could go before the cross. Moses, he reaches the apex of the human being's reach for God. This is as far as you can go. Paul goes, look at the glory of the Old Covenant. Look at the glory of the Old Covenant. He's not mocking it. He's in awe of it. Look at how far Moses could go. Here he is. He's at the height of it. And he says, at the height, the, 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 the high point, he says, God, show me your glory. What is your glory? What is the glory of God? The, the, the glory of God is not the power of God because we had just seen him split the sea. We've just seen him conquer an army. We've just seen 10 plagues. We've just seen manna and water. It's not the power of God. It's not the provision of God. What does Moses mean when he says, God, show me your glory? He's on the mountain. He's on the sea of glass. Heaven's come down. What? So it's not the visual beauty of God because he's standing on a sapphire pavement. He's, I mean, what you see in Revelation 4, Moses is standing in going, show me your glory. So you're going, okay, it's not power and it's not beauty. What are you asking for, Moses? You could recontextualize that prayer, that request to mean this. God, I know there's more to you than what I've seen. Show me who you really are at the core of your being. That's what he's asking. Show me who you really are at the core of your being. But it wasn't time for God to answer that question yet. And therefore, God says, I can't. I'll pass before you. I'll tell you my name. But I can't give you what you're wanting. But what if he could? What if he could? What if he could? If he could have. If God could have answered Moses. If it was time. The answer would have looked something like this. It would have looked like the whirlwind of Ezekiel 1. The whirlwind of fire and smoke, and light, and glory. It would have looked like this power that's, that's hiding something, and you're trying to peer past the light, and you're trying to peer past the veil, and you're trying to peer past the smoke and the fire. You're trying to see beyond it to the very core of the center of the universe, and you're trying to see the essence of who God is. And as you look out from the smoke and the whirlwind comes the man from Nazareth. And he's dressed in a towel. And he bends down and he begins to wash Moses' feet. That's the glory of God. The glory of God, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. The glory of God, the ministry of the Spirit reveals the glory of God in the face of Messiah. The ministry of the Spirit is what we have in the new covenant that Moses could not have. We have the revelation of the core of who God is in human terms that we can understand. We have the word, the thoughts of God given expression. We have the man. We have the one who shows us who God is. God 
is humble and a lamb and a servant and a lover and one that fights with all his heart for your future. Once you know that, once you see the glory of God, Paul says, you can no longer preach yourselves. You have to preach Christ. Oh Lord, fill the earth with those that cannot preach themselves. Fill the earth with those that cannot preach themselves, but those who by the ministry of the Spirit get life on the inside and eyes to see and a heart to connect and they know the man and they can preach him. You need what you do not have. You have to give something that you do not have to teenagers that cannot get it on their own to give them something that endures through all the seasons of life. Let's get oil. Let's stand. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. I'm going to pray a really simple prayer. I'm going to pray Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. Just again, as you did at the beginning, I want to invite you to put your hands on your heart. Here we are, Lord. Ephesians 3, that he would grant, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, would be able to comprehend with all the saints the width, the length, the depth, the height, all of it, God, the fullness of the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you would be filled with the fullness of God. I'm asking all over this room, Lord, for fresh oil in the heart, oil for the experience, the life and the joy, your affections and your tenderness. I'm asking for grace for more tenderness and desire in our hearts today. Grace for the ability to see you and know you and experience you, your glory, your beauty, who you really are. We could not preach ourselves. God, make us preachers of Christ, filled with His love, filled with the depths of the experience of who He is and the way that He loves us, the truth of His Word. I'm asking all over this room, release fresh fire and light on our lives. Release fresh power in our minds. Release fresh fire, affection, and tenderness in our hearts. Thank <laughs> you.